0: Okay, our text this evening is going to be Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, Before we take the Lord's table. Um, it's gonna, my, text, my sermon's going to be Philippians 3, 8, but let's go ahead back to verse 1, and we'll read down to verse 11 to give it its context. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also, I, if, anyone thinks, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul makes a statement in Philippians 3.8. I want to focus on this evening as we prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's table. Um, verse 8, again, Indeed, I count everything as loss, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Um, the challenge is, can we honestly say these words? Can we talk like that? Can we, can we talk like this ourselves? Is it re- could we do that and not be a liar, right? Um, that's the challenge. Would we make ourselves liars if we did uh, talk like this? As I think on whatever time I have left in my life, and it's funny, as I hit all those benchmarks... In my life, 30, 40, none of them bothered me. I hit 50, that bothered me. (laughs) I hit 50 and I started thinking more seriously about how quickly this life is going, how fast it goes right by. And as I think on whatever time I have left, I want these words to be true of me. And I, I think that's a good goal for any believer, no matter where you're at, in your 20s or 30s or whatever, if you're a teenager, These ought to be the words that we want to be said of us. Um, Now this verse breaks down in verse 8 into two important truths which we must consider if we claim to follow Christ. If we claim to follow him, there are two truths here that must be true for us. And in the first part of verse 8, it's that everything has lost its value. Everything has lost its value. And I mean everything. Everything first part of verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss. So the word indeed, it's not really there. It's pretty much just something that's supplied by the translators. There's a, like four participles that are kind of thrown in there in the Greek language. And and it's just putting emphasis right here on verse 8. So that's why they use that word indeed, because how do you translate these, the string of participles really that that go in there, and most of the translations do that. They put something like that in there. Um, But the idea here is that, first of all, you count everything as loss. Now, if you go back to verse 4, you look at what he's counting as loss, right? These are the things in verse 4 down to verse 7, that before as a Jewish man, he would have elevated and said, this is my pride, this is my joy as a Jewish person. These are the things that he's saying, they don't matter anymore. So look at the list that he's got here. He says, if anyone's got reason for confidence in the flesh, I've got more. <laughs> he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day, according to the law of God, that's what it called for, of the people of Israel, the son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He, he had nailed down his tribe, which Jewish people can't even do anymore, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. <laughs> I was a Hebrew of Hebrews you know, he he doesn't even ever dare to say he was a Christian of the Christians, right? But he says that he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and as to the law, he was of the uh, Pharisees. He was that theological group. He could identify himself theologically. As to zeal, he persecuted the church, even standing there when Stephen was stoned to death, and all the garments were thrown at his feet, indicating he was in charge when Stephen was stoned to death, right? And so... Um, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. In other words, it's not that he'd never sinned, but it's that you couldn't really pin anything on him that was observable from the outside. He says, but in verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He counted all that loss, but that wasn't all that he counted loss because it says there in verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss. He's saying not just those things. It's not just all of that pride that he had In his upbringing, in his heritage, and in his religion, he said everything is lost. Kittle in the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament said it's not the objective loss of the thing itself, it's the subjective loss of its value. He's still a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, no matter what he does, no matter how he looks at it. He's still circumcised, he's still of the tribe of Benjamin. He's still all those things. What he's saying is, none of that, that means anything to me. It, doesn't, it, doesn't, it has no value. Everything has lost its value. Christ is so infinitely greater that his earlier confidences now mean nothing to him. Now there has to come that point in your life as a believer when you came to faith in Christ where this is true of you. It has to have happened where before maybe you were trusting in your own righteousness. And at some point when you're confronted with the truth of the gospel, you must come down to that, right? You must face the fact that that didn't mean anything. It was worthless. A lot of people find it when they come to faith in Christ, they're, so in, they're involved in a lot of different things that suddenly it just doesn't matter anymore. It might be a hobby, it might be a, just any kind of particular pursuit. And comparatively, those things have lost their value. Now, for a lot of people, it's not even that they stop doing that thing, but it's just it doesn't matter to them anymore. They they might still do it, but it's not like... That was a funny thing when it was... Before I was saved, I was doing the book business, and I was trying so hard to get rich. I mean, I would go in debt to try to buy a book that I thought I could flip to make more money on. I was constantly pushing myself forward in that world and trying to find a way. And then I came to Faith in Christ, and I got in trouble with all of the uh, online distributors because I just stopped filling orders. I was so focused on the other stuff, I wasn't even checking my email. That was bad. Okay, let me just say that. That was bad. But by by, what I'm saying, in my sort of early Christianity, I was so, I didn't care anymore. And I actually had to deal with that. That had to be corrected. I had to care something about it, figure out what you're doing. So But that's what I'm just trying to by by way of illustration. Christ became more valuable, and there has to be that point. If that hasn't happened for you, I do wonder about whether you've met Christ. Have you? He's precious. He's precious. So it's not a matter of something else being more valuable. Someone else is more valuable. It's not coming to church is more valuable. You come to church because we love Jesus. You can't, you can't keep me from here. You know That's the way it should be. Because he's more valuable. I remind you that there were wise men from the East who sought him with gifts that were not as valuable as he was. And we're talking about gold, frankincense, and myrrh. None of that came close. I think gold right now is at $2,000 an ounce. Not even close. He's far more precious than silver or gold. <clears throat> the next term that you have there is because of why? What's the reason? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. This surpassing worth, when I looked at it in just the ESV, I thought it must be a noun. But then I looked at it in my interlinear and found out this is a verb. How does worth become a verb? Well, because of the fact of the action. It's surpassing. (laughs) His worth is surpassing. What it means is, uh, well, it's translated in the simplified New Testament as priceless worth. In the classical Greek, literally, it meant to hold something over someone's head in a literal way. Figuratively, it means rising above something else in the classical Greek. So the action is in the rising. The value that's rising. It's used five times, only five times in the New Testament, but three of them are in Philippians. So let's look at these other references in Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. This is um, not talking in the same context as we're talking about over in 3 8, but in chapter 2, verse 3, it says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So you're, we are supposed to look at other people that are believers as having a rising value. Imagine that. How do you think of people? Do you see them as people that are have rising value, or do you run them down, you know, in your own mind or whatever? Philippians three eight we're, we're looking at, but four seven is the other example, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Imagine a peace that has rising value. If there was ever a time for that, it's now in our culture. With everything that's going on around us, we should be these people that have the peace of God rising in our hearts, not diminishing, because of circumstances. We should be rising, and this will guard our hearts and minds. Everybody's struggling with mental illness right now because of all the tension that's out there. It shouldn't be amongst Christians because we do have the peace of God. So there is this surpassing worth, this rising value that's in who? Well, it's in Christ. It's in him, of knowing him. So the knowledge of Jesus Christ is superior. Is the next thing that we learn here about everything losing its value. It's a matter of perspective. You have this rising value that, that's our perspective. And then the knowledge of him is superior. It says the worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. We'll come back to the my Lord thing in a minute. But knowing, again, here's another one where I thought, okay, well, this one, knowing, I would have thought that would be a verb. It's a noun. <laughs> I start wondering, do I know anything about grammar <laughs> when you're in this section? No, it's, it's a noun, And what it's talking about is the body of knowledge that can be acquired by knowing him, by walking with him. Those of you who have walked with Jesus for a long time, right, think about everything that you've learned about him since the time you came to faith in Christ. And if you've been walking for any length of time, you know, like more than 10 years or something, you look back and you realize you knew nothing even if you grew up in the church, you didn't know anything, right? And then as you go, you're, fun, you're learning more and more, but the more you learn, the more you find out that you don't know. Isn't that right as you grow in Christ? And so that's where wisdom comes in. That's where maturity comes in. But that is the superiority of the knowledge of Jesus. Now, you might be able to go out and study certain subjects in university and become a master at them, even you get your doctorate, right, a Ph.D., and be able to teach on those things, and you might be able to get to know those things very well. But the amazing thing about Jesus is that his rising value is directly connected to this knowledge that you can't even begin to get to the bottom of it. That's why entire libraries could be filled with all the books that have been written about Jesus. I'm trying to do that. My family thinks. You <laughs> can get them all. Um, Wilbur Smith, actually this is a a book about books. Wilbur Smith uh, wrote a book called The Treasury of Books for Bible Study. He was talking about books about Jesus. He said there is no theme in all the world so exalted, so cleansing, so satisfying as that of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's the knowledge of him that we get as we grow, but the thing that you learn here in Philippians 3.8 also is is that we're talking about the knowledge of his lordship. The knowledge of his lordship is superior. Now, in Greek, there is a definite article before my lord. There's a definite article there that translates of the, basically. It's, uh, if you transliterate it to English, it's T-O-U. It places emphasis on Paul's relationship to his lordship. Whenever you've got a definite article... It's trying to emphasize something in Greek. And so it's right there before the words, my Lord. So of knowing Jesus Christ of the my Lord. <laughs> so what's he saying? What he's trying to communicate is that this knowledge of his lordship is something special. It places emphasis on Paul's relationship to that lordship. What, is that, what does his lordship mean? It means he's master over everything. Romans 10, 9 and 10 indicates that he's God. Obviously, he's master over everything as God. But he is master over us individually and over the church. So Kittle says, the, what, what Kittle's saying about this fact, about the article, the knowledge of Jesus Christ as his Lord is absolutely supreme. We need to proclaim his Lordship. We need to know it, but when we're proclaiming the gospel, we need to proclaim Christ as Lord because he is. He's king, he's master over everything. And so again, I'd say to you about this, if this can be said of us, then what it'll mean is is that it will look in our lives as if Christ is Lord over the way that we do do things. Not just in like a head knowledge, but in the way that we live our lives. And no one can doubt. That the Apostle Paul saw Christ as Lord. I mean, he was willing to lay everything down, to take the gospel everywhere over those missionary journeys, and even from very early on in his conversion and his walk with Christ. So that's the, the, first, the first truth that you have to that you're going to have to wrestle with here. And then the second one is the Philippians, the second part of verse 8 is that knowing Christ comes with a cost. We heard a lot about this last Sunday night when Jeff Crago preached on Luke 9, 23. Powerful message. If you haven't heard it, it is online now. I'd encourage you to listen to that. Knowing Christ comes with a, with a cost, and I would say that every true believer pays it because it says in the next part of the verse, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, for his sake. This is passive where it says, uh, I have suffered. Or I was, I'm sorry, I was made to, uh, it could be translated, I was made to lose all things. I was made to lose all things. Because it's passive in the Greek. So what does that mean? Well, in this case, what it means is the suffering and everything that he lost, the suffering loss that he went through, that came to him from God. He didn't do that of his own volition in this particular phrase. In this phrase, God did it. God worked in his life in such a way that he lost all things. Every day of his life, after he came to faith in Christ, was a train wreck. Right? I mean, every day, he's got people trying to stone him to death, chasing him from pillar to post, right? If you just read the book of Acts, you see... What happened? This is just normal Christianity. That's normal Christianity for the Apostle Paul. And to some degree, it's going to cost you something. And you might not even be looking to lay anything down, but all of a sudden you'll notice friends are leaving, right? And you'll notice family isn't so happy to see you around at Thanksgiving, right? Or or you notice people at work don't really want to hang out with you much anymore. And you notice that you start losing things And you aren't trying to force the people away. They're just doing it. That's God doing that. And so he was made to lose all things. Charles B. Williams' translation of the New Testament just says, I have lost everything. Now look at, we had Luke 9 last week. I'll just remind you of this. Luke 9, verse 25. Uh, Jeff did reference this. And I'm not trying to improve it all on the sermon because I can't do that. Um, but Luke 9.25, I just want to point this out. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? The same Greek term. So I make this observation. The only reason a believer will gain the world and lose his soul is because he never met Jesus. That's the only reason a believer would ever gain the world and lose his soul. He's never met Jesus to begin with, because when you meet Christ, He strips us of everything when we're truly saved. He'll strip us of nearly everything. Now, maybe not physical. Maybe you got you know possessions, whatever, but status, and standing, and position. Those things, and in some cases, yeah. Ask people around the world that have everything taken from them when they came to follow Christ. We're just not there yet. So every true believer will pay that. The second thing to know about this cost is that even the things that we value become sewage. Our treasures become sewage. Because it says there, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. The older translations were less bashful with this term. King James 1611 King James used dung, as well as the 1560 Geneva Study Bible. Nathaniel Scarlett's translation of 1798 used the word filth. Cranmer's Great Bible of 1539 used the word vile. Kittle says, only with hesitation does Greek literature seem to have adapted it from popular speech. Literally means dung, muck, both as excrement. The choice of the vulgar term stresses the force and totality of this renunciation. The two elements in Skubala, namely worthlessness and filth, are best expressed by a term like dung. The post-apostolic fathers don't even use the word. So the early writers, (laughs) the early Christian church, wouldn't even use the word. This is a strong word, and it would be awful close to words that we have in our language. I don't even refer to them. But that's what he's trying to get across here. And what he's saying is that if you're going to say this, of, what I'm going to say is what you're, if you're going to say this of yourself, then the things that you treasure, we agree with it that it ought to be lost. And when we think of them, they have about, a, about the same value as what's in your sewer system. What do we do with it? <laughs> right? We flush it out of sight. Because it's revolting, we don't brag about it, and we don't put it in a display case. I use a little bit I'd be a little bit edgy here to get the point across, but that's really what we're doing when we revel in this stuff that we say we've left behind it's these are I know I'm holding up a high you know standard I'm just preaching the text, but the text says to us as believers. Our priorities completely get upside down, I'm turned around here with this. I mean, everything is going upside down. Train wreck is a good word for what happens when you come to faith in Christ. It, everything changes. Everything gets stripped. Everything changes. Has that happened? And as the, and this is why I say this: as I am at 50 years old, I don't know that as a believer I've always done this. Not the way that I should. I don't think I've I've had my right order of affections all the time. But when I run into a verse like this in the Bible I'm confronted. We ought to be confronted. And we ought to be asking ourselves like we talked about in Ephesians 5 last Sunday, look carefully at how you walk. Right? Look carefully at how you're ordering your life. And if we're ordering our life putting this junk in display cases, right? we got a problem we need to we need to repent, so we work the last point here under under this um, major point of our treasure well the next thing after our treasures becoming sewage is that therefore, once we view things that way, we work to gain knowledge of him if you're going to flush that all away it's not just a matter of flushing things away and not putting something else there that's far better anyway in its place that's what we're doing in verse 8 in order that i may gain christ i think the king james translates it win that i may win christ gain christ win christ whichever the first usage of this term in the new testament is matthew 16 verse 26 matthew 16 verse 26 says, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? It's the same, the parallel passage there. If he gains the whole world, that word gain is what we're talking about. You can work, people are, they're working to try to gain everything. But what does it profit you if you gain all of that and you lose your soul? You, it's a bad trade, it's a bad deal. I don't, know, I don't know if anybody watched the Olympics this last time. It <laughs> doesn't seem like many did. And uh, I just watched it on YouTube to catch the highlights. But I saw an interesting highlight. Uh, I used to do some cross-country skiing. And so they had the cross-country skiing in this most recent Olympics. And they had biathlon as well. Biathlon is where they shoot and ski at the same time, which would be incredibly difficult with your heart rate so high and all that. Well, they, the, the course was especially hard. In uh, China there. And as they were coming, every race that you saw with the cross-country or the biathlon, every time they got to that line, they're pushing as hard as they possibly could. And, but when they got to the line, they utterly collapsed. They just wiped out completely. You know, and they had to be helped. They, a lot of them had to lay there for minutes before they even got up. What were they doing? They were trying to gain the prize, right? They were trying to gain the finish line. They were putting all their effort out on that course so that they could get it. When you looked at them putting the effort out, you th- I thought, boy, they got a lot of energy. <laughs> then you hit the, they hit the line and collapse. They gave it all. They gave all of their energy just to get a bronze, silver, or gold medal. That's the kind of work that we need to put in to gain the knowledge of Christ. Christianity is not just a spectator sport. It's some, we're the ones in the race, and the one that we're seeking to attain is Him. To know more, and it's not—it's just like the athletes. It's not a burden. They love to do it. They'll train hours and hours a day to attain that thing that just will disappear one day. But we'll have Christ forever. So let's just encourage each other with this truth in Philippians 3: eight, let's press on, right? As Paul says, I'll get the prize. Let's press on, let's work hard for that. It's not that we earn our salvation through that. It's because we love him so much that we just want to know him. That's what we're talking about here. So, you know, we're going to, in a moment, we're going to take the Lord's table and we're going to be reminded that Jesus came in a real body, that he really died. We're going to be reminded that he poured out his own blood for our soul, right? For our souls. We're going to be reminded that we trust in him for our, our spiritual life, just like we trust in food for our physical lives. That's the relationship. We got nowhere else to go. If we don't have him, we're done for Right? And so let's just pursue him. Let's just love him so much that he's everything to us. Paul is able to say, compared to Jesus, everything has lost its value to me. Can we honestly say that? Are there possessions, status, people, or privileges that we cling to desperately? It will not be long. It will not be long. And every single one of us in this room will have to say goodbye to everything anyway. Whether or not we can bear the thought of it might be a good indicator of whether or not our profession of faith is real or not. Remember, Paul didn't actively make himself lose all things. That was passive when he came to Jesus. He responded to that call on the road to Damascus and he never lived another normal day in his life again. Listen to Thomas Adams, the Puritan. This was from his book, Meditations Upon Some Part of the Creed. Here's what he says about Christ. Christ is the sum of the whole Bible, prophesied, typified, prefigured, exhibited, demonstrated, to be found on every page, almost in every line. Christ is the main, the center, where all these lines refer. He is he is everything. You know, I don't know whether you get it or not. What we hear on Sunday morning when we hear Pastor Randall preach, what we're hearing is a man of God who's pursuing Christ. And you might look at it and say, I don't think I've ever heard preaching like that before. Well, praise the Lord. Thank God that somebody preaches like this stuff is real because it is. It's the most real thing. In, in in the universe he is Christ is the most real person in the entire universe he's more real than this room we're sitting in so let's pursue him because he is worthy and where we haven't let's repent so that we may en- enjoy him enjoy him know him the greatest one of the greatest the greatest thing that we can do with this life that we have So let's pray, and then we'll transition to the Lord's table. Father, we thank you for your word. It is true. It is powerful. It forces us to look carefully at how we're walking. Lord, I pray that you would help us to repent where we have not been careful, where we have uh, walked in degrees away from you to get back quickly on the path, to come right back. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that all the things that we think so much of are really nothing in comparison to knowing you. You are the one who has surpassing worth, ever rising, with no bottom to the knowledge of what we may have about you. Lord, help us to pursue that knowledge of you just by walking with you because we love you. Help us to love you rightly.